Well, dear friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Today we're reading verses 13 to 16. And we are finishing our month-long focus on the core values of global mission and mercy and justice. Uh, It's appropriate for our church to take one month to consider this topic, to consider these values, to realign our priorities, realign our commitments, realign our thoughts and our vision back. We want to be a church that is not mission drifting, uh, but staying on course so that not even a pandemic can get our church to stop doing what we are committed to doing, which is uh, honoring the Lord, worshiping him, and loving the world as we serve in mercy and justice and global missions. Now, as we finish uh, today in Mercy and Justice, next week we'll consider the resurrection of Jesus for Easter. And then the following week, we will return to our study in the book of Jonah as we, in our seventh week, enter chapter two. And so uh, please stand with me now. Our standing is an act of worship as we read God's word and receive God's word as he is our God who addresses us. So as we open our ears and we ask the Spirit's blessing, hear now the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and would you pray with me once more. God, we ask your blessing and your help because by the power of your spirit, uh, you illuminate the truths of scripture to speak to our hardened hearts, our straying hearts, our calloused hearts. Oh Lord, maybe our weak and hurting hearts. And so, oh Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do a work in us this morning through your word. Do this for your glory and your honor's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Fans of basketball, and perhaps you're not a fan of basketball, but you may know the name Reggie Miller. Uh, Reggie Miller, for those who don't know, was an NBA player. He's now in the Hall of Fame. And when Reggie Miller retired, he uh, was the leader in career three-point field goals made. He eventually went on to win uh, the Olympic gold with the NBA team in 1996. And the Indiana Pacers, for whom Reggie Miller played, they retired his jersey. Now, Reggie Miller is well-known and he's celebrated, but uh, less well-known, but equally, if not more impressive, is Reggie Miller's sister, Cheryl Miller. Uh, Cheryl Miller was a four-year basketball player, superstar, varsity, played in California. And over those four years, she led her team to a record of 132 wins and four losses over four years. She she went on to play college ball, but she's most well-known for uh, this amazing feat where she set a record of scoring 105 points in a single game in her high school senior year. And of course, like I said, she went on to win two NCAA championships and she uh, won MVP, most valuable player for both of those championship games. And then she was inducted into the inaugural Women's uh, Basketball Hall of Fame. Now, I mentioned these siblings because uh, so many people know are familiar with Reggie Miller, but they don't know his sister, Cheryl Miller, who was equally impressive, if not more impressive. So if you think Reggie Miller was a great basketball player, you should think greater, greater and higher thoughts about his sister. Now, likewise, uh, many people are very familiar with, are impressed with this wonderful verse, John three sixteen. It's a wonderful verse. 
and it captures the heart of the gospel so gloriously. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So many people are impressed with, they know this wonderful verse, John 3.16, but what they are less familiar with is John 3.16's sister, 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 is a verse that's equally, if not more beautiful, wonderful, powerful, glorious. In that verse, Apostle John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 sound very similar in their talk about love because they're penned by the same author, penned by Apostle John. And in 1 John 3.16, John explains to us the amazing good news, the gospel of God's sacrificial love for us. And what he's saying is that Jesus loved us so much despite our sin, despite our failures, and despite the ways that we fall short of God's glory, that he sacrificed his life for us. He laid it down in our place so that we could have life eternal. But what you notice happening in 1 John 3, 16 is that John doesn't stop by just telling you what Jesus did. That's the indicative. Jesus saved us by dying for us, but then he seamlessly ties the imperative to the indicative, the command to what was done. And so we read that believers ought to do as a result of what Jesus did. They ought to lay down their lives for others. John is exhorting the readers, if you've believed and received the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has laid down his life for you, then in turn, you will meet the spiritual or you will meet the material and physical needs of others through acts of sacrifice, acts of mercy, acts of justice, and acts of love. Or if I could put it more simply, here's my exhortation, my challenge for you this morning. If you have received and believed, you will meet needs with deeds. Now, if someone laid down a beat for me, I could have wrapped that for you. <laughs> if you have received and believed, you will meet others' needs with merciful deeds. You see, as we become a church, as we become Christians who are concerned and consumed with doing mercy and justice, we are reflecting not a deviation from the gospel, but our grounding, our foundation in the gospel. So let's begin by looking at verse 16 again. So here we read this. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Now, the way Apostle John talks about love is very different than how love is talked about in our culture. Because in our culture, what is love? Love is a feeling. Love is an emotion. Love is an experience. So look inward. Look at your heart. Look at your feelings. But John is saying, how do you know love? You don't look inward. You look outward. You look outward and you look upward. You look at the cross of Jesus where he laid down his life for you. And what John is saying is when God loves you, God doesn't merely love you with sentiment. God loves you with sacrifice. God doesn't merely from his throne feel intense emotion for you. But God does something for you. You see, God doesn't love us by feeling uh, overwhelmed with, with helpless longing and powerless yearning for our predicament, being lost in sin and from heaven, from his throne room, say, I just really, I love them so much. I wish I could do something, but oh man, I, I can't. You see, God's love, it, it wasn't merely sentimental nor sympathetic. God's love was sacrificial. Meaning that when God loved us, he didn't just feel an emotion for us. God got off of his throne. God took off of his, he took off his crown. He came into the world and he laid down his life for us. 
This is the gospel. Jesus died in our place for our sins. And here's what this means. The gospel is deed-centered. Now, what do I mean by that? The gospel is deed-centered. The gospel is grounded and founded upon this great deed that Christ has done. You see, when, when God loved you, he didn't open up the heavens and declare with a mighty voice from the throne room, I love you. I love the world. I love sinners. Rather, when God chose to show his love, do you know what he did? He tore open space and time. He condescended into this world in the body of an infant baby. He grew up with his face set toward Jerusalem, knowing he would be crucified on the cross so that through his sacrificial death, you might have life. God did not love you in word or talk. He loved you in deed and in truth. So yes, it's true. We are called to share the gospel with our words, but the very nature of the gospel is that it's accomplished with Christ's deeds. So then God's love for you is both declared, but it's also demonstrated. God tells you he loves you, but then he displays his love through his sacrifice. And we both know, we all know that both are necessary to show the full extent of love. Now consider a wedding, for example. We've had many of those in our church recently. And in a wedding, there are two ways, two particular aspects of the wedding service that show and display the covenantal love between bride and groom. Right? The first is in the, um, the vows, the exchange of vows. It's a declaration of your love, that in sickness and in health and in want and in plenty and eye gunk and in morning breath, that you will love this person no matter what. I vow, I make this commitment, I do. But then those verbal vows are followed with an exchange of rings, a demonstration of your love. So you don't just profess I do, but you show I do by giving a ring. And if a wedding service only has one of those, then it's a lopsided service. Can you imagine a service where a wife will, says, you know, I refuse to say I do. I'll give you the ring, but I want it to be done in absolute silence. Well, then that demonstration without a declaration, without words is meaningless. What does this mean? Yet on the other hand, imagine a groom who, who uh, vehemently, he, he, he aggressively, he loudly says, I do. But when asked by the officiant, now what token of love do you have to bring? He has empty pockets, but says, well, I felt really good emotion. I cried even. Without a demonstration, the declaration would be meaningless. You see, when God loves, God declares and God demonstrates. God says, I love, and then he shows his love through the sacrifice of his son. And that's important to understand because when God loves us, he doesn't love us with sentiment. Oh, I feel that for you. He doesn't love with sympathy. Oh man, I understand your situation. He doesn't love with speech. I love you, I love you, I love you. He loves it with sacrifice. He gives his son for us. That's what the gospel is. The indicative of what Christ has done for us. But then, what does John do? And it's what makes John, uh, 1 John 3, 16 so wonderful. It says, here's what God has done for you. And then in very strong words, we read in verse 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What Jesus did for us and then what we ought to do in response are bound together. Because when you receive the gospel, when you believe the gospel, 
it becomes two things for us. It becomes a pattern and it becomes a power. The gospel becomes a pattern and a power. First, the gospel gives us a pattern. In the gospel, God lays down his life for us. He sacrifices his son for us. And so receiving the gospel, you have a pattern. You want to imitate. You want to display to others the sacrificial love that God has given you. So God's love, which is so selfless and sacrificial that cannot be selfishly hoarded. Rather, to receive a selfless and sacrificial love, you must selflessly and sacrificially give it. The Bible doesn't just tell you the pattern. Because a lot of religious books tell you the pattern. Moralism tells you the pattern. But the gospel gives you the power. The gospel is that transformation in your life where you're able to love others, not with the love that you produce in yourself, but with the love that's received. There's a difference between going to a water cooler and dispensing uh, a cup of water in that paper cone cup that you take one sip of and then you're thirsty again and you need to constantly go back and forth. It's another thing to stand under a waterfall and to have the water fall over you. In the gospel, we're tapped into the very source of divine love. We're united to God himself. And so his love for us is abundant and overflowing and unending. And so out of the love with which he has loved us, we love others. And so what we see happening is that the gospel gives you two things. It gives you a pattern and it gives you the power. It gives you a map and then it gives you an engine. It gives you directions and then it gives you fuel. And it shows you what you are called to do and it gives you the strength to do it. So the question is, if you've received the gospel, if you are a confessing believer here this morning and you believe what God has done for you in Christ, Is there then evidence of the way that you are laying down your lives for others, that you are sacrificing for others, you are loving others? Now, what does that look like? Because there are going to be very few occasions where you're called to literally lay down your life for another person. But John gets out of the realm of the hypothetical. I think it's very practical, very concrete. He says in verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John puts flesh and bone to his teaching. And he says, listen, the evidence of God's love for you is merciful generosity and generous mercy. And he's particularly talking about the poor and the needy in this context. So so when John applies theology to practice, he says that Christians who know God's love will meet the needs of others with deeds of mercy. And in fact, he's so... He's so adamant about this that John goes as far to say that it's hypocrisy and it's a contradiction of God's love to do otherwise. This is why John then questions. He says, if you have the world's goods, you see your brother in need, you close your heart, how does God's love abide in him? He says, it makes no sense at all. It's a hypocritical term. It's a contradiction of terms. Now pay careful attention to John's logic because he says this in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Now what does that mean? That means uh, he's talking about earthly resources and material possessions. And he's calling us to be sacrificial with what we have to the needy. But then he says this, he says, yet closes his heart against them. And what John is saying is that the closing of your heart is evidence 
in, that, that you're refusing to share, to sacrifice your, your goods, your wealth, your possession, your resources with the needy. Do you have God's love in you? Oh, yes, I do. Well, how do you know? I just feel it. Well, John's saying, well, that's not enough. Because God's love isn't manifested in sentiment or sympathy or speech, but in sacrifice. Do you have God's love in you? Yes, I do. Well, how do you know? You look at the heart. He's saying, if you don't have God's love in you, you have a closed heart. How do you know if you have a closed heart? John's saying you have a closed wallet. You want to know the condition of your heart? Do you have an open heart to God? Well, then you have an open wallet to others. And to not is a contradiction. It's hypocritical, John says. It's a hard thing to hear. But if God's love for you is abiding, abundant, overflowing, your love for others will be more than sympathetic or sentimental or in speech only. It'll be sacrificial. Now, here's the thing. There's a great temptation to turn this into guilt because we are, we are so prone to do that. It's our default setting. So you hear something like this and you just feel really bad. Maybe you went shopping yesterday. Maybe you went and you, and you ate out and you spent a lot of money and, and you're just like, oh, I feel really bad. I feel ashamed. But John is not calling on you to give and to love others through guilt. That's not what he's saying. So he it very intentionally couches his words in the gospel. Right, what is he saying? He's saying, if you know God's love for you, his mercy to you in laying down the life of his son for you, then you ought to love one another. How do you show mercy for others? You begin with mercy shown to yourself. How do you, how do you prevent, protect yourself from being guilt-driven and keep yourself gospel-driven? You begin with mercy. Well, what does mercy begin with? M. E, me. Mercy begins with me. How do I show mercy to others? Well, what does mercy begin with? It begins with mercy shown to me. God's sacrificial love for me. God's, God's cost and payment made for me. Because I've received the gospel, because I've believed the gospel, I then ought to meet the needs of others with deeds of mercy. So John actually goes on in verse 18 to say this, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And his last exhortation here is this. If you're truly children of God, you're not just going to love in word or talk. You're going to love in deed and in truth. That it's going to be more than affections and acknowledgement. It's going to be actions. So he says deed and in truth. And what he means is your deeds won't be hypocritical. They won't be virtue signaling. For every good deed, you're not asking someone to take a picture so that you can post it so that others would see. You're not giving in order to impress. You're not loving in order to receive recognition. You're not giving in order to feel good or better about yourself or good and better uh, than others. He's saying that if you have truly the gospel at work in you, your deeds will be produced from this faith. Your deeds and your love for others will be evidence of the abiding, abundant love of God for you. So the question for us to focus on is, is first this. Is this true of me individually? If I really believe that God has sacrificially given unto me, am I really sacrificially giving unto others? And then consider our church corporately. Is this true of us? If we believe that God has died for us, the church's bride, are we then giving and loving accordingly? And when we do so, friends, 
this focus on, on mercy and justice is not a distraction from the gospel. It's an adoration of the gospel. So many times people think, well, if you engage in those social concerns, then you are leaving the gospel behind. Well, no, you're adorning the gospel. Because, in fact, if you look at the church, not just the past couple of years, you look at the ancient church, the very early church, what you see happening is that their acts of mercy for others, the love and care for the orphans and the widows and the marginalized and the sideline of society was actually increasing the movement of Christianity for the spread of the gospel. Mercy and evangelism were held together. In the fourth century, the emperor, the Roman emperor's name was Julian. And he's known as Julian the Apostate because he was born a Christian, raised a Christian, but when he became a Roman emperor, he actually forsook all of that. He left all that behind. He turned away from Christianity because he wanted to return the Roman Empire back to uh, its ancient religious pagan practices. And so he was on this mission to bring the Roman Empire back to that, except what happened was that there was a group of people, a thorn in his side, the biggest obstacle to his mission to bring Rome back to the pagan religions. And that was this despised group that he called the Galileans. They were Christians who followed Jesus of Galilee. And Julian was so upset because although he wanted to bring Rome back to the ancient pagan practices, there were these groups of Christians who were out there doing mercy and justice and caring for those that the Roman Empire didn't care about. And so the gospel was being declared and being demonstrated. More and more people were coming to Christ. And so he's sitting there trying to push the agenda of the Roman, of Roman paganism. And here the Christians are loving others and caring for others and sacrificially giving. And their movement is growing and more and more people are coming to Christ. And Julian the Apostate is so frustrated, he pens these words. While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. You could tell he's bitter and angry. See their love feasts and their tables spread for the indigent, which is the, the poor and the needy. He says such practice is common among them and causes a contempt for our gods. See, what was happening is that as the church, as early Christians were engaged in caring for others, the gospel was spreading. Which means this, Cornerstone, we're focusing on mercy and justice and global missions, but we always focus, focus first on that first core value, gospel centrality. Because from it, we draw the pattern and the power to live as God calls us to live. Because the pursuit of mercy and justice, when the church is engaged in it, doesn't distract from the gospel, it's adorning the gospel. Now, why would Christians love and care for others in this way? And, and that would be, that's the big turning point. Why, in the, world, in the world's eyes, why are Christians and churches caring for strangers and for the community? Caring for the homeless on the side of the road? Caring for the hungry? And the answer we would give is because we have a Savior who laid down his life for us. He did the most sacrificial deed to meet our greatest spiritual need. So in response to God's love, we love others as he has loved us. What does that look like? So with our remaining time, let's just get really practical because I want to clarify two things. First is this, who the church practices mercy and justice for? And second, how can the church practice mercy and justice? So number one, who the church practices mercy and justice for? And the first answer is this. The church must look to the care of its own members. The church looks to the care of its own members. It's intentional that John mentions brothers twice in this passage because he is referring to other Christians. 
And he's, what he's saying is in the same way that elders and deacons can't manage the household of God unless they can manage their own household, how can Christians, how can the church uh, care for the, the, world, the, the needs of the world, the citizens of the world, when they can't care for their own members? So the first thing we're called to do is look inward. If you are a member of this church, you have a responsibility to look to your brothers and sisters in Christ and see what their needs are. What are the mercy needs most immediately present among us? Who are the needy? Who are the vulnerable? Who are the afflicted among us in this very room joining us online? Who needs Christ's love declared and demonstrated to them tangibly? Because before you look out there, we must look in here. Look around you. Look among you. Who is suffering? Who needs help? Our Christian obligation is first and foremost to those in our own spiritual family. But of course, it would be foolish to say that's where our obligation ends. Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 6, verse 10, So then while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of the faith. We see, although the priority is our own members, we're also called and expected to do good, and pursue mercy and justice, and meet the needs of those outside of the church, to care for our local community. Now, I say local community very intentionally because I draw the principle from this. If you look at 1 John 3, 17, this is what John wrote. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, sees his brother in need. John is being real, realistic. John, John is not just, you know, head in the clouds and, and completely out of touch with reality. John knows you can't meet everybody's needs. It's impossible to feel the burden, the weight of that would just crush you into the ground because you can't. So John is saying you are responsible for what you can see. You're called to care for the needs in front of you and among the people in front of you. And so applying that to the church, who are we, the church, called to care for? We're called to care for the Lansdale community, to serve the, the needs that we can see, the needs in our very backyard. Before we go cleaning up other people's backyard, let's clean up our own. That's why all of our mercy and justice outreaches, all of our projects are geared and, and shifted and located and emphasized in the local specific neighborhood in which our church inhabits. And that's why you're invited to give up your Saturday mornings to help Mana on Main Street, which is 0.7 miles down the road, according to Google Maps. That's why you're invited to pick up a paintbrush and help beautify the neighborhood and the community on Jenkins Avenue. You're invited to walk and raise money for the pregnancy clinic two blocks away. You're invited to donate clothes and food and other home essentials that will help the feed and provide for the families in this borough. You're invited to fill backpacks to serve the families of our local elementary schools. We are called to serve and to help others. We do it first within our own membership, our own church, and then within our local community. Number two, here's the second thing I want to clarify. How the church can practice mercy and justice. And so first is with material provisions. John wrote in verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods. Well, John is saying this first. He's saying, you need to have enough for yourself and for those in your care. If you have the world, enough of the world's goods for yourself and for those in your care, then you should help and support others and meet their needs. John is not saying that uh, if you don't have enough for yourself, go out and help others and then go to the church and say, hey, can I get some help? Because that's just money being passed around. 
The biblical expectation of gospel-shaped mercy and justice is radical. It's out of this, it's out of this world. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to face it. Nobody really wants to believe in it because the pattern of gospel-shaped mercy says this. Take care of your own needs. Take care of the needs of others. And then with what you have left over, take care of your wants. Now, nobody wants to hear that message. It's really hard to hear. God's expectation is not take care of your needs. Then take care of some of your wants. Not all your wants, some of your wants. You don't want to be greedy. And then with what you have left over, see if anybody needs help and if you have anything to give. That kind of pattern and behavior is shaped more by convenience and comfort than it is by the costliness of the cross. The costliness of the cross says that you look at others and that, and that you care first for necessities and then niceties. What are my necessities? Make sure I care for that. What are your necessities? And then with what I have left over, let me spend it on the niceties that I can live without, really. So you give material, you give monetarily. In the occasions that arise around us and among us as a church family and our local community. The calling here is pretty local. It's those you see. All right. Second, we practice mercy and justice with our deeds. Remember verse 18 says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Mercy can, but it doesn't always look like dollar signs, but it does look like deeds of sacrifice. Because not every need is material. Needs are often intangible. And this means that every single one of you can be a minister of mercy to another person, that you're called to be a minister of mercy. You see, look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1 gives us this perfect example about needs and deeds. James writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He's saying, the way that you mercifully meet the needs of those in the community here is not through money, he says. It's through a visitation. Because in the ancient culture, orphans, widows, they were neglected by society. They were, they were deemed unimportant. They weren't contributing. And so they were looked down upon and sidelined and marginalized. They were disenfranchised people. Nobody cared for them. Nobody gave a voice to them. Nobody advocated for them. So James says, if you want to meet their needs in their affliction of loneliness, of feeling worthless, of feeling like non-contributing zeros in society because that's what they've been told, he says, what do you do? You meet their need with this deed. You visit them. Mercy for them, mercy for many others even today isn't always a matter of material provision. What can you offer in your merciful love? Your personal presence. Sometimes that's harder to give. Your prayers. You offer them your community. You offer them comfort. You offer them acknowledgement. I see and I know what you're going through. You offer them advocacy. I'll, I'll speak for you. I know you don't have the words to speak the eloquence, but let me do it. The deeds of the church the deeds of Christians should be diverse, as diverse as the needs around us. We just need open eyes to see and open ears to hear. And when this happens, everybody, every single member is given an opportunity to live out mercy and justice that God has called us to locally in our church family, locally in our community. It's a cornerstone. Let's Adorn the gospel with mercy and justice, not because the gospel is lacking in any way, not because God needs our help, but because we've received and believed the sacrificial love of God in Christ. It's given us a power and a pattern now. And so we seek to meet the many needs of others with merciful deeds. And in doing so, 
We become the kind of little children that God desires. We become the kind of local church that can serve the world. Let's pray.